Amen and uh, good morning to you all. One thing to add to the uh, announcements is beginning the first Sunday in December uh, on the 7th, I believe, at, from 5.30 to 7.30, the young adults will be getting together. The young adults, it's going to be a new ministry from the ages of 18 to 30. So if you're 17 or younger, you're out. If you're 31 or older, you're out. Um, but that's the young adult ministry will begin on Sunday, the 7th at 5.30 to 7.30. Uh, the location is to be determined. It'll probably be in someone's home in Capitola, someone who we haven't identified yet, maybe even someone in here who doesn't know it. I'm trying not to make eye contact with you all, but uh, one of you will probably be hosting that meeting. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Picking up in verse 9, author J. Stratt once recalled an NBA game in which he attended that ended rather strangely, where Dallas Mavericks point guard Derek Harper dribbled away the final six seconds off of the clock, thinking that his team was up by one, when in actuality they were tied. And so he wasted precious seconds that could have been used to win that game and then the Dallas Mavericks went on to lose that game in overtime. What's interesting was what Strat wrote afterwards thinking about that scene that he had watched. He said, dribble, dribble, dribble go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the years of our lives. I don't know if Strat is a Christian or not but it's very true I think from a perspective of heaven, I'm sure, to watch sometimes as we as Christians sort of dribble away our opportunity, waste away and just sort of remain the status quo with what's around us instead of really impacting this world and being representatives of Christ. How often I think maybe each one of us at times is guilty of sort of dribbling away an opportunity to win the game uh, to be impactful for Christ and his kingdom uh, as a result and so here we are in second Corinthians chapter 5 where the apostle Paul really he has eternity uh, in his sights he has the judgment seat of Christ on his mind and the love of Christ as he says here in this chapter this morning compels him it compels him to be and these are all things that he says in the chapter to be an ambassador on behalf of him to persuade men about him and to live for him encouraging uh, the church uh, to uh, live not for themselves any longer but to live for God instead that with as little or as much time as the apostle Paul had left as many as could be reconciled unto God would be reconciled unto God. Now, that kind of a life, a life where you live exclusively for Jesus Christ, where you're worried even or concerned, I should say, about the precious seconds that could tick away, where you want to be an ambassador, where you persuade people to come to Jesus Christ, where you live for him and no longer for ourselves. That kind of a life is going to be viewed, I think, by most people as a little bit crazy. Like you're outside of your mind kind of thing. And 
For Paul especially, if you consider where he had come from, I think many people must have thought that. He was probably born uh, privileged, so to speak. His parents probably had some money because they were able to send him to the Harvard or the Stanford of Israel at the time, to Jerusalem, where he would stutter under Gamaliel. And at some point, he becomes a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, you have to understand what it means to have been a member of the Sanhedrin. Because at that time, of course, you know, Israel, you know, Israel was God's chosen nation. They were the ones responsible for keeping God's word. And at that time, they were the center of religion in the world. And at the center of Israel was Jerusalem. And at the center of Jerusalem was the Sanhedrin, this 70-member Jewish council that made up the most religious men in the world. And he goes from that, that position, that privilege, to having physical difficulties and trouble seeing and a thorn in the flesh we know about, persecuted, stoned, shipwrecked, scourged. No doubt he probably lost his wife either to death or she left him. It's very possible because as a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had to have been married. And later he writes after his conversion as if he was not married. In several occasions, we get that indication that he no longer had his wife. She probably came home one time after he got back from Damascus and was a Jesus freak. And she probably thought he had lost his mind as well if it wasn't for the if it wasn't the fact that she may have died also all the way down through time and, and on Wednesdays we're in second Timothy right now and we follow it all the way to the end of his life where he's a man with very few friends he says he's forsaken he says only Luke is with me and so the way he finishes from incredible incredible privilege, from a measure of wealth, from all the potential in the world, here he is in 2 Timothy, and he tells Timothy, hey, bring me my cloak, bring me my, the parchment, so I have something to read as he's sitting in a prison with just Luke and no one else, everybody else essentially has abandoned or forsaken him, and he's a man with three or four friends. And all of this would lead people on the outside of his life that weren't traveling with him or didn't know him as well as maybe Timothy or Luke did. All of this, especially in Corinth, would lead the church in Corinth, many of the people there, to criticize him. We know that he had, in this letter, been responding to people in terms of that criticism uh, that had been leveled against him. And one of those criticisms leveled against the Apostle Paul that we haven't talked much about, but he seems to be addressing here in this chapter is, Paul, you're crazy. Now think about it. Before you criticize the Corinthian criticism, keep in mind that, let's just say, for instance, that this church had had one pastor, one founding pastor, and that I was this church's Timothy, so to speak. And that founding pastor had gone out to plant churches. And all we heard from the mission field was the guy was getting thrown in prison. He was being stoned. He was being beaten. He was uh, being shipwrecked, poisoned, all these kinds of things. Wouldn't we not, even today, knowing what we know about the Bible, sit back and go, that guy's crazy. And I wonder if he isn't called of God or not. Was he sure he heard from the Lord when he decided to leave this church and go out there and plant churches in light of everything that he's going through? And that's sort of the accusation that's been brought against Paul. He answers, 
He counters the criticism at the end of chapter 4 where we began last time by saying, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then as he transitioned into chapter 5, he said a few things. He said, For we know, in terms of if you think I'm crazy because I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ, we know we're going to get a new body. A building from God, he said, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. He said, we know the promise of heaven to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then he said, we know also these things because we've been given the Holy Spirit, the down payment, the guarantee of the promise of our salvation and our future in heaven is the Holy Spirit. But maybe even more importantly than those things, why did Paul live a crazy sold out bonafide, on-fire life for Jesus Christ. Maybe because he was, of all the apostles, maybe of all the people that have ever lived, he understood grace. He understood grace. He was the apostle of grace. Some 100 to 120 times in his epistles, he uses the word grace. You got John, who's the apostle of love, and in the Gospel of John, and in the epistles of John, and in Revelation, he only uses the word grace like six or seven times. Peter and his epistles only use it like four times. The Apostle Paul, some 100 to 120 times, we hear about grace. Because that's what drove him. If there was something that made him crazy, so to speak, it was the grace of Jesus Christ that he felt like he was in no way deserving of at all. The calling God had placed upon his life. He wasn't deserving of that either. That was also according to grace. And so therefore, picking up in verse 9, where we left off last time, he says, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And he's going to tell us here in this passage this morning, in case you're interested, how it is that we can be well-pleasing to him. How to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. First, though, the why. He's going to give us the why in verse 10 and verse 14. Verse 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we know here in verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ, we talked about this in a previous study recently, is referring to the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema seat in those days was a place where if you participated in an athletic competition, that's where you would go afterwards to be rewarded for how you participated in the competition. The Bema seat is a place where believers will go, those that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, to be judged for our works. We will be rewarded for the things that we did in this lifetime, our faithfulness to service and the calling that God's placed on our lives. This is not to be confused with the great white throne of judgment, where unbelievers will be judged according to their sin. However, the reality of judgment for unbelievers, what Paul refers to here in verse 11 as the terror of the Lord, is what motivated him. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now we'll come back to that in a second, but let me finish the verse. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. What he's saying there is that we are well known and you know according to your conscience that as we attempt to persuade men, we do it in a straightforward, honest fashion. We're sincere 
Because one of the things that was common in that day was there are a lot of people that appeared to be sincere, but they really didn't have the right heart. He's going to touch on that a couple times here in this passage. But he's like, no, we were the real deal. We didn't tell you one thing, but act a different way which is, you know, at that time, but, you know, today also, right? Today, you got a world full of people that are having a hard time telling the truth. You have a world full of people that are not straight up. Everybody's a politician, and everybody's got to twist everything, or everybody's trying to find a cut around the corner or try and trick the system. Did you see this in the news this week? There was a bus driver in Egypt who decided he would have his wife take his drug test for him because he didn't want to get caught. He didn't know something about his wife, but he had his wife take this drug test. His boss knew about it. They were on to him, and they gave him a chance to confess what he had done, but he didn't confess. And so afterwards, his boss congratulated him on his pregnancy. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> That has nothing to do with anything we're talking about this morning, except to say that, again, Paul's saying, look, we were straight up. We're not telling you one thing, but then living a completely different kind of life. We're not saying what we want to say in order to make money out of it or anything along those lines. You know, and your conscience bears witness to it. Now, back to this idea about the terror of the Lord and knowing that we have to persuade men because of that terror of the Lord. We know that apart from Jesus Christ, Every single one of us would be a target of the terror of the Lord. What is terror? Terror there means dread, or it means fear. It can also mean like an awesome reverence, because in reality, the terror of the Lord now was something that was placed upon Jesus Christ so that it would not be directed towards those who have faith in him. And yet, I don't think we should sort of water down or soften this translation here. The Greek scholars translated this terror, not many places where we see the word terror in the New Testament, and so I don't think we should try and apologize for God. I think the important point is to remember that God takes very seriously not only the way we live this life, but what people do with his son how they respond to his son's offer of salvation. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to live once and then face the judgment. And that reality became a driving force for the Apostle Paul. It was his passion. He had a passion for souls. He had a burden for the lost. I don't know really how you can be a Christian and not have or at least develop over time a burden for the lost. If you believe what you really believe in terms of that you've been delivered and you've been extended grace and that some will be separated from God for all of eternity, those that reject Christ, then we all should have a burden for those people because hell is a real place, despite what some people will tell you, and it's a place that people go to, which is exactly why we ought to, quote, persuade men. Because we, those of you that are born again, you know the difference between being lost and being found. You know the difference between being in Christ and being in sin. And when you think about someone, anyone, not just someone you know, although every single one of us has probably a burden for someone that you know that's not in Christ, that needs to get saved. When you think about anyone, 
standing before God, before that great white throne of judgment, unregenerate, unforgiven, it should motivate you to want to persuade them to follow Jesus Christ. 4 verse 12, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So again, I said there were a couple places where he mentioned that there were those that on the outside looked pretty good, their appearance maybe have even looked spectacular on the outside, but not in heart. And Paul was the poster boy for that in a lot of ways. Paul, history tells us, maybe five feet tall. He had a crooked nose. He had bowed legs. He had real thick eyebrows. We know that he probably wasn't a very eloquent speaker. He says as much himself. We know that he had tattoos of scars all over his body uh, from the beatings that he had taken place and so as a result he's a walking illustration that it's heart and not outward appearance that ministry is about it's heart not outward appearance in fact there are some that because of that outward appearance the outward judgment of the world the flesh so to speak that might have again been questioning the success of his ministry as a result or as a result of that appearance it doesn't look so good paul because of the shipwrecks because of the imprisonment because of the beatings because of the scourging because of the stonings all those things they might have been questioning the success and so rather than him being their boast as he says Many were ashamed of him and thought that he was outright crazy. And he acknowledges that. Verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Even in Acts 26, Festus said as much. He said, Paul, you are beside yourself. And to say someone is beside themselves is to say that they're literally standing beside themselves. They are outside of themselves. It is to infer some kind of mental imbalance. It is to say you're crazy. It is to say you're fanatical. And so Paul would say, am I crazy? Am I fanatical? Well, if I am, yes, I am, but I am for God. I am for Jesus Christ. And it would put him in good company. If you remember in our study through the book of Mark, Jesus's quote, own people thought he was quote, outside of his mind. Remember that? His family's like, get him away from the crowds. He's outside of his mind. So Paul would be in good company along those lines. Maybe some of you, or if not most of you, at one point or another, have probably had somebody approach you and say, you're crazy. To give up what you've given up, to do what you do, people that have given up lucrative careers, to go into the ministry, others that pack up all their stuff and move to a foreign country, now, I mean, when the Petricks are here, as they're here with us this morning, I mean, we look at their sacrifice and we go, that is the Lord. Amen. What a higher calling. But I'm sure if you ask them that they still know, have acquaintances from the world that thought that they were outside of their minds. You have young children. How are you going to be able to afford this? You don't know about Peru or the you're gonna have to learn the culture it could be dangerous all these kinds of things that they no doubt had to face in making that kind of a move or just even for you or for me the radical change the u-turn for Christ that takes place in your life even if you don't pack up and move even if you don't make a vocational switch 
Just the change in how you act and who you are, what your passions are, can cause people to think you're crazy. You're crazy because of the things that you do now, reading your Bible, going to church, the things that you won't do. You won't do anymore. You won't go to the party. You won't hang out at the bar with them after work every day like you used to. All those kinds of things cause people to go, you're crazy. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They're confused by that. How come you're not about that anymore? How come you don't roll with us any longer? Because they don't understand why anyone would do that. Well, here's why. I gave you the first reason why we should be crazy Christians, why Paul was a crazy Christian, because of the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. But here's the second why. Verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ compels us. Now, I want you to look at that real carefully and notice that it's not our love for Christ, but his love for us. And Paul ought to know. Because Paul wasn't just, and I hesitate to use the word just, but he wasn't just getting high or indulging in sexual sin. He was killing Christians. He was forcing at the threat of the sword, Christians to blaspheme Christ. I can't think of anything in the world that I'd rather not have done than that right there. So Paul, of all people, would know about grace. He's like, look, in comparison to all of your backgrounds as it relates to sin, you're all rookies. He said, because I wasn't the chief of sinners. And he really believed he was the chief of sinners. He said it under inspiration of God. But he says, now Christ's love compels. It's the driving force of his life. And the word compels means to constrain or restrain. Have you ever felt restraint that you wouldn't otherwise have, but you had because you love God? I'd love to smack this guy right now, but God loves me. And somehow God must love this person too, so I'm going to hold back. You want to give them a piece of your mind, you want to tell them how you think, but somehow because you're different now, God's love, God's love for you, Jesus loves you, this you know, the Bible tells you so, I will not smack this person right now. God's love restrains us. And the word there is in the present tense, which indicates a continual habit of life, that the restraining, the constraining, is a continual pattern of how you live. What is that pattern? We're going to see it in just a minute. Middle of verse 14, he says, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. Now here it is. Ready? Wait for it. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Did you know that was in the Bible? Did you know it was in the Bible that it says that those, meaning us, believers, should no longer live for ourselves? Did you know that? That's fanatical. That's crazy. To say, I'm not going to live for myself any longer. I'm going to live for God, of whom I've never seen. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. But Spurgeon once said this, he said, What value is the grace I profess if it leaves me unchanged? I can 
say all these things. I go to church, I read my Bible, I put worship music on in the car, I pray, I do all these things, but if that doesn't make me a better husband, if that doesn't make you a better father or a better mother, a better worker, a better friend, then, then Spurgeon would say, what kind of grace is that? If Jesus died for me, is it only fair that I live for him? And therefore, verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we regard no one according to the outward appearance, no one according to even sin that could be in their life. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that is, he's saying from a human point of view, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, we no longer, maybe at one point Paul looked at Jesus from a human point of view. He may have met Jesus when he was still Saul of Tarsus. We don't know. But he may have known who Jesus was from a fleshly perspective, but he says not any longer. Now, knowing what I know about Jesus, everyone is either in Christ or they are not. And that's the only thing that matters. That's what he's saying. If they're not in Christ, they need to be saved. However, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We could stay here all day and talk about this verse. In fact, this passage, it sneaks up on you. You're like, 2 Corinthians, what's that about? And then, boom, we have a couple of the most classic and well-repeated, well-rehearsed, known and memorized verses in all of the Bible. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you're a new creation this morning, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you're a new you. You're a new creation. You are not just an upgraded model. You're not reformed or rehabilitated, but you're completely new. You've been crucified with Christ, the Bible says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so to be in Christ is to be more than just forgiven. It's to be justified. It's to be righteous. Justified. Remember when we're going through Romans? It means justified, never sinned. God the Father sees you as a finished product. Everything has changed. Now, that does not mean that we no longer wrestle with the flesh because we know we do. The difference is you're free now not to sin. You're free from the law. You're free from condemnation. We're free in Christ. And it's a wonderful freedom. One of the great illustrations I've ever heard about this comes from that early church father, Augustine, who before he came to God, he really dove in headlong into sin. And one day after he had come to Christ, he was out and about, and he ran into a woman that he had known in those B.C. years that he had participated in some of the sinful acts with. And she went right up to him and said, Augustine, and he ran the other way. And she said, but Augustine, it is I. And he said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
And that's an interesting word too. Some translations have it that way, a new creature. Because we really are like a whole new species. Before Jesus Christ came, no one could say that about themselves. Nobody was born again in the Old Testament. They may have been justified by faith. That's different. But they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit and given a new nature. After Jesus Christ, now the, everybody but humanity has the opportunity and the calling of God to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be a new creature, a whole new species, so to speak. Went to lunch this week with a brother and we were talking about like the infatuation this world has these days with the whole sci-fi genre, outer space, aliens, more and more movies, Hollywood's big into this whole scene. They're very interested in it, maybe because they're wondering if we can survive this world someday and will there be resources on another planet and can we move to Jupiter and all these kinds of things. Or maybe because they're afraid of aliens and wonder if aliens will come someday and like an Armageddon type war with another world kind of thing. But it's a real big thing on the whole Hollywood front. Where are the aliens? Well, I'm here to tell you they're already here. We're them. We're the aliens. We're the ones whose world, this is not our home. We have been made spiritual creations fit for the kingdom of heaven. Left for a time, a season, so that we can make an impact, so that we can take, we can abduct as many people as possible while we're here. And not only does that result then in a new outlook on this world, new philosophy, new way of living, not only does that change the way we should be looking at each other, if you're a new creation in Christ, you're not the same person you were three months ago. Because God's changing you, he's sanctifying you, he's perfecting you, he's moving you towards that, what you're gonna be. He is gonna complete that good work in you someday, and so he's working. But it also changes the way that we view, we have an entirely new way of looking at the unsaved world around us. They are sinners for whom Christ died. They're not friends or enemies. They're not um, customers or coworkers. They're not Republicans or Democrats. They're lost sheep in need of a shepherd. And that's what he wants us to look at them as. Lost sheep in need of a shepherd, a burden for souls a burden for the lost, a burden for people who don't know Christ to the point where we would live, if need be, a crazy life to show them how much we believe in Christ's great love. Now, verse 18, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is very different than what we saw a couple weeks ago, the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of reconciliation. That is the calling that is placed on your life. And don't sit back and say, well, no, that's the calling for pastors or deacons or missionaries. No, that is the calling of every single Christian to be faithful to the ministry of reconciliation. Whatever it is that you're called to do within the confines of that calling. What is the ministry of reconciliation? That's reconciling people back to God. That's what religion means, to relink man back to God. That's what we're in the business of doing now. And so that means you're not allowed to give up on people. You're not allowed to check out on people. You're not allowed to be overly upset or disappointed in people, no matter how they treat you. 
Because you're in the ministry of reconciliation. To give up on someone or to get overly angry with someone that is in the world and acting like the world makes no sense because your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, that's the gospel. Now then, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love that, ambassadors for Christ, his representatives. As God was in Christ dying to save us, now God is in us pleading for people to be saved we're god's ambassadors in that day remember that rome was the prevailing world empire predominant empire and throughout the roman empire there were provinces territorial units or administrative divisions throughout the empire some of which were submitted and friendly to rome some of which like israel were not so friendly to Rome. And so it was necessary in that day for Rome to send ambassadors to some of these provinces so that rebellion wouldn't break out. And similarly, the analogy is that as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, here we are in a world that is largely not submitted and largely in rebellion from God, and so we are sent out as ambassadors to declare the gospel of peace. I think it was George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, he kept a large globe in his office, and when new ambassadors would come in and be interviewed and sent out by him, he would do a little test. He would spin the globe and then have them stop the globe and try and locate the country that they were going to go to as quickly as possible with no air. That's my country. And then he would tell them this. Never forget, though, <clears throat> that while you're over there in that country, your country is the United States. You're there to represent us, take care of our interests, and never forget you're representing the best country in the world. And again, I think similarly... The analogy would be that we are representing the best of the best of the best. And that's why we're called to plead and persuade and be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're to represent something that is very appealing to people. And it is an awesome responsibility to represent God to represent Christ because we are representing the best this universe has to offer. Oh, and by the way, we also have the very, very, very best message. Better than an ambassador who simply declares peace. Better than an ambassador who just tries to prevent rebellion. We have the best message ever. Verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And again, I could probably say, get comfortable, we're going to be here another 45 minutes, just talking about this verse alone. Because it is, I mean, it's so theologically and practically important and rich and wonderful. 
everybody could stand up and say a little bit of something about verse 21 and it would be wonderful. It's been said that God treated Christ at that time like he lived our life. But he treats us as if we lived his life. And that's what it means that he became sin for us. The sinless Lamb of God who felt the full weight of sin, the terror of the Lord, so to speak, so that you and I could be made right with God. Amazing grace. Amazing love. If something is crazy in this passage, if something is crazy in this world, it's God's crazy love for humanity. It's God sacrificing his son, which none of you would do, and I wouldn't blame you. Sacrifice your own child for people who don't want anything to do with you? That's what's crazy, is God's great, great love. And you think about it, what a message for us to be entrusted with. What a message to be ambassadors for that Jesus was made sin, that the Son of God was made sin so that the people that we are persuading can be the righteousness of God in him. If the world <clears throat> can convince Christians uh, stylistically only that beer commercials are good, and they are in terms of content, in terms of, wow, they make good commercials, don't they? Pretty clever, pretty creative folks. Then if they can sell beer, we should be able to share Christ because the two don't equate. And the strength of your sales pitch is always on the basis of your product. And we have Christ who became sin on their behalf. I can think of nothing that would cause people to no longer want to live for themselves. I can think of nothing I'd rather be an ambassador for. I can think of nothing I'd rather be crazy for, crazy about, to live a crazy life on behalf of than this message, than this God, than this Savior of ours. As we close, I just want to say one thing about this also in wrapping up this whole crazy theme I came up with also. I'm not so sure today it's such a bad thing <laughs> in this crazy world to be a little bit crazy because some will hate you, but that's the case no matter who you are. Others will admire. Others will take a step back and question it and go, why? What drives them? What makes them want to do that? Why would they give all that up? Why would they make that change? Why would they read their Bible so much? Why are they always in church? Not everybody, but there's going to be some people in your life, even if they don't admit it to you, they're going to stand back, some of them, and they're going to wonder why it is that you would choose to live that kind of a life, a different kind of life. And that's going to be attractive to some people. It's going to be very attractive. That's what's going to enable you to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to be a representative of Jesus Christ, is the way you live your life. The way you live your life has to be a little different. It has to, to an extent, cause some people around you to question it. I question, and listen to me, I question 
the validity of a changed life that isn't being questioned. I'm not so sure that anybody's life has really changed if nobody's second-guessing it. This church was second-guessing Paul even though many of them or most of them were born again. I'm not so sure that at the very least your unsaved family members shouldn't think you're a little bit outside yourself. If they do, I'm not so sure that's all bad. Because that's how they thought of Jesus. That's how they thought of the Apostle Paul. So it's not all bad. Amen. Father, thank you for example of your saints in Scripture, the Apostle Paul, Lord, and how he lived his life for you. And um, I thank you, God, that uh, you know, we have the same desires implanted within us. And I do pray for, Lord, those in here who, who know you, but maybe sometimes struggle with this idea of letting go of some of the things of this world and, and living for you exclusively. And even if people think that they're, they've kind of lost their mind a little bit, I, I pray also for those right now who recently have made that decision and they're getting some flack from their family and their friends for how they choose to live their life. And that's challenging. And God, what that does, and you know this, God, but what that does sometimes is it causes us to question ourselves because we're not confident in ourselves, we're just confident in you. And Lord, we're not trying to make people think we're crazy. We don't wanna be disliked. We don't want to be excluded from anything. We just want to honor you. I just pray you'd help us to do that, Lord. I just pray that we'd live our lives in such a way and we don't know exactly how to strike that quintessential balance in today's culture, but Lord, we just pray we'd live our lives in such a way that people would want to know what it means to be a Christian. They'd ask us about it and we'd be able to tell them. And Lord, just pray that as we leave here today, we'd leave just a little bit different, a little bit changed, a little bit more focused in on how you would have us live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name.